Bob Murphy Show, episode 178. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show this one it's a bit of a double dip, but it's only because this is such a big topic and we need to get the word out. So we're talking about GameStop and the market manipulation, all that good stuff that I'm sure you've been hearing about. And so what happened is I was getting ready to do episode 178 of my show on it. And then Tom Woods contacted me and said, hey, I need to cover this. Do you want to come on and be my guest? And so that's what we're what we're doing here. So you're going to hear Tom interviewing me on his show about this, but since I was about to do this anyway, I just thought, why don't we go ahead and, and double package it. So what I will do is a special bonus for you, Bob Murphy Show listeners. At the end of my discussion with Tom, then it'll come back to just me and I'm going to say some things about short selling that we didn't get into on the, in the, you know, the discussion that I had with Tom, right? So that'll be your value add. So it's good that you listen to it here on my end, not from that lowbrow Tom Woods character. All right. So I think if you don't even know what we're talking about, just listen to Tom and I will start from scratch and, and lay the thing out. So in case you have no idea what we're talking about, we'll explain it and you'll learn some stuff about how the stock market works and whatnot. So even if you don't know what we're talking about, I think you'll get something out of the discussion. And like I say, stick around at the end when Tom and I say goodbye. It's not the end. You'll hear some more analysis from me at the tail end. And also, again, if you want to see the links to this stuff, I'm not going to say it during the discussion with Tom because it's his show. But I'll have links for you folks at bobmurphyshow.com slash 178. Bob, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Now that you have the Bob Murphy show and we don't do contra recruitment anymore, I don't know. I, I don't get to talk to Bob Murphy all that much until I more or less badger him. I, I didn't really have to badger you. I just, I just asked sheepishly, could you come on and help talk about this topic? A lot of the time I do evergreen topics on this show and not necessarily breaking news, but boy, this topic is everywhere and it has some economics in it. And I do still want to have an economics emphasis in some of the episodes here. So I want to start off with some basic concepts rather than just jumping right into the contingent facts of the matter. I'm quite sure there are going to be people listening who don't really know what it means to short a stock, but things like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, high frequency trading or stuff like that. They don't know really the, the details of this. So could you explain what it means to short a stock, maybe using some simple numbers with an example? Yeah, sure. So, Let's do the easy case. Let's say there's a stock out there that's trading at 100 and you think it's going to go up. So what do you do? You buy it. You paid $100. Now you own the stock. And then let's say it goes up to 110 and then you sell it. So you made $10, right? So that's what you think a stock's going up. What you do is you buy, then you wait for the price to go up and then you sell. And that's the way you make money. That's pretty straightforward. What if instead you thought a stock were going to go down? So here, it's not as obvious what you do. If you, if you owned it already, like stocks that you held and you wanted to keep holding them, but you thought, uh-oh, there's going to be a price dip, you would sell it at 100, then let's say it drops to 90, and then buy it back. So there, you would still have your stocks that you started out with, but you'd have an extra $10 because you, you, know, you sold them, you got the 100, it went down to 90, then you bought it back. So of the 100 you got originally, you only had to give 90 of it to get the stock back. So that way, given that you were going to hold on to it for the long term, you get an extra $10 in your pocket if you could correctly anticipate the fall. But what if you think a stock's going to go down and you don't own any of it? What do you do? Well, now you engage in a short sale, is what it's called, whereas the other one would just be a, a sale, you know, just selling it. And so there you go to someone who does own the stock and you borrow it from them. So you say, hey, can I borrow your share of this stock for, let's say, 30 days I'll pay you some money just, you know, to make it worth your while. Otherwise, why would you agree to this transaction? 
and then I'll I'll give you the stock back after 30 days. And maybe, you know, you have to post collateral or something with your broker, you know, if you're buying, borrowing a lot of shares of stock to make sure you're able to do it. And then you take that share of stock you just borrowed, you sell it for 100, and now you're hoping it goes down. So let's say it goes down to 90, and then you use the 90 to get it back, get the share back. You give the person the share back at the end of the 30-day period. And so then you've made $10 minus whatever the, you know, the fee was you paid for that to get, get the right to borrow and so on, right? So that's what a short sale is. It's, it's how you profit if you correctly anticipate that a stock right now is overvalued as it were. So if you think it's the market's it's, it's overvalued and it's going to go down, that's the way you profit to get ahead of it is, is you short it. I think some people think of shorting as being a kind of gambling, but it's no more kind of gambling than going long a stock than outright buying a stock would be, if we're going to use the word gambling in that way. Is there a way in which short selling benefits society? Sure. And, and just on that previous point, I think where that comes from is there's a sense in which, um, and I'm just doing this off the top of my head here, I hadn't thought of that one particular aspect, but I can understand why someone might think that because if you think a company's got solid fundamentals and it's providing a good service to people and you like the management and blah, 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 then you could be like a long-term investor. So you're holding it for the long-term. You think it's a, it's a solid company, good fundamentals. Whereas, you know, it, there's, it's hard to come up with the analog of that. Like if you're shorting a stock, usually it's just because you, it's like a speculative move that no, you think it's overvalued and it's going to go down. It's, it's, it's hard to look at it. So it's the difference between like investing and speculating. So in terms of, you know, Misesian praxeology, maybe there really is no place that you can place a, a dividing line crisply between what's the difference between, you know, all action is speculative in a Misesian sense. But I think that's where that notion comes from. Tom. But in any event, that's, that's not problematic. There's nothing antisocial about it, like you say. So just real quickly, what is the social function of stock speculators, right? Let's, let's embrace that term wholeheartedly and not say, oh, I'm talking here about fundamental investors. I'm not talking about those wacky speculators. No, speculation per se is a good thing in a free society because it keeps stock prices from drifting too far from where they ought to be. That, that's the idea. So if a, if a stock is way overvalued, then the speculators come in. So just think about what short selling does. It pushes it down. It, again, it's, it's, real, it's easier to do it the other way around. If you think a company is undervalued, if you think the company is going to do well in the coming months, and eventually the stock price is going to be a lot higher than it is now, by you buying now, Besides you profiting yourself, if you anticipate correctly, you're pushing the price up. Your action of buying now pushes the price up. So you speed the movement of the stock price towards where it really should be and vice versa. If you're right and the stock right now really is way overvalued, by you short selling your action, you take shares and you sell, that other things equal is pushing the price down. So it actually helps everybody. If you think about random people just coming in who, you know, they're not studying the, the markets. So they're not really getting into it. They're just buying stuff because they're, they're part of their 403B or 401K or whatever, and they're buying large chunks of shares of stock. It actually reduces volatility, even though that might seem ironic to people. In general, allowing stock speculation reduces volatility because, again, the idea is you have professional investors or speculators whose business is to scour the markets looking for stocks that they think are either overpriced or underpriced, and then their actions move them back towards where they should be. Now, all this stuff is predicated on that you're correct. Obviously, if you, if you short sell and you're wrong, and then they come out with a great earnings report and the stock shoots way up and stays up, you lost money. But I mean, that's, again, like saying, you know, an entrepreneur who opens a restaurant in an area that then the customers don't like it and goes out of business that's not a flaw of capitalism. That's just that guy screwed up. So there's a profit and loss mechanism, but just like profits in other areas signal you using the resources the way the consumers would want, even something here like stock speculation, you want prices to be correct. If for no other reason than if some huge company were way undervalued, then people could come in and purchase it and make all kinds of crazy decisions, right? So like, you want really valuable companies to have a high share price to make sure they're in the hands of serious owners who are going to make wise decisions. You don't want some 15-year-old to be able to waltz in and buy Google or, or Apple or something and, and then fire all the existing managers, right? That would be crazy. So likewise, just like in general, a high price for resources tells entrepreneurs, hey, you can only use this if you're really sure it's going to help 
your product and something the consumers want, like a high price of gold or whatever, is a signal to everybody to be real careful with this thing because it's scarce. Likewise, if a company is really valuable, that's a signal that, hey, there's a lot of assets tied up with this enterprise and be careful with how you deploy them. And so that's why it helps society if stock prices are correct. And that's what speculation does if, you know, if it's, if it's successful. The impression you get from reading some critics of maybe the system such as it is, is that large investors can use various mechanisms like this, like shorting, to go to a perfectly sound company and just wreck it at will. And large institutional investors can just do this. They can wreck companies at will through this. And this is a a moral outrage. Is that so? Well, unfortunately it is. And that's why there are so many trillionaires walking around because they just make free money automatically. And that's why no companies exist. Is that sarcasm? Yes. So my point is, if it were literally what you just said, then the outcome would mean... Uh, you know, why would people just be billionaires right now? Why wouldn't they just go ahead and say, oh, wait a minute, we just short a bunch of companies and make odd free money and it's guaranteed. And so they would go do that and they wouldn't be billionaires, be trillionaires. And then they would just keep picking off all the companies until everything. So clearly it can't be literally as bad as you're describing. Now, I don't want to go on the flip side and say, nope, there's never any example of anything even remotely like what you just said, Tom. So yes, in the real world, things are messy and certainly we're not in a true free market right now and they're all there are all sorts of institutional ways that the big players in the in the club are protected and they get away with things that then if the little guy does it is de- is denied them like and I think that's where we're going to probably go with this conversation that's part of the story here and why so many people who aren't directly involved with this are taking interest in the story so but but j- j- again just theoretically speaking in a free market would this ability to short stocks give certain people unconscionable market power and they could just go in and destroy companies? Well, no, because again, let's say the company's fundamentals really do dictate that in the long run, the share price should be about $100 a share. And again, you know, if we had more time, we could get into what do you mean by what the price should be? And I realized, you know, that's actually a, a deep philosophical question almost. But in the sense of what the dividend payments are going to be, the profits, da, 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 in terms of the core business, you know, how the this share price on Wall Street doesn't directly affect the day-to-day operations of the firm, there's a sense in which, yeah, some companies, their share price should be 100 as opposed to five or opposed to 10,000. And so if a short seller comes in and get, you know, borrows a bunch of shares and engages in massive sales and pushes the price down to 80, well, if the fundamentals are still sound, like the fact that someone's shorting your stock doesn't mean all of a sudden you lay off your employees and your supplier stops sending you product. If the company's still as profitable as it was before this short selling operation, other speculators can say, whoa, that stock is way undervalued now. It's trading at 80. And our models say that it, you know, it should be at least 90 and arguably 100 and 105. So they would come in and they would buy. And so again, you'd you'd have this again, the point of speculators and what they're what they do is they keep prices from bouncing around too much. So yes, short sellers have the ability to push down prices, but by the same token, people going long have the ability to push up prices. And so, you know, you could just as well tell a story, hey, you really can't give people the freedom to just go buy stocks at will because then they'll just push the price up to infinity. You know, their action, the very act of them buying pushes the price up. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so people with a lot of money can just go make money at will because they just pump the price up. So there are in reality, like I say, examples of pump and dub schemes and, you know, kind of shady things where people with financial newsletters push a stock and because they're in on it and then that pushes their their subscribers buy it and then the, the person writing the newsletter sells it ahead of time. You know, there, there's lots of things like that that people need to be wary of. But the mere fact that you're allowed to buy and sell and move prices does not give you infinite power because there's always people on the other side that can do the opposite. All right, so th- I think that's pretty good background. Do you think we're set now to get into the specific example or was there anything else I overlooked? I suppose the the other technical thing maybe we should explain is just what a call option is. Yeah, yeah, do that. Okay, so if you think a stock is undervalued, so you think it's going to go up, and particularly if if you're viewing it more as like a a gamble, like like you're buying a lotto ticket or something, then a way you can effectively leverage your money 
rather than just you buying the stock outright, you buy what's called a call option on the stock, or and there's other fancier derivatives. So what a call option gives you, it's the right to buy shares of stock at a certain price. So for example, let's you know go back to the, the easy numbers. Let's say the stock right now is trading at 100 and you think it's going to go, you think it's undervalued. You think it's going to go up to at least 110 and maybe 120. So what you can do, rather than just using $100 to buy a, one share of stock, and then if it goes up to 110, then you make $10, you know, 10% of your money. Instead, you can go buy call options that say, this gives you the right to buy shares of stock at, let's say, like 105. And so right now, that that would be, considered it would be called out of the money because right now the stock's trading at 100 you owning an asset or a, a contract what's called derivative that gives you the right to buy that stock at the price of 105 right now that would be useless to you right you wouldn't exercise it right now because it's selling at 100 why would you want to buy at 105 you would just go buy at 100 in the market but then if the price goes up to 110 like you think it will now if you have this thing that gives you the legal right to buy the stock at 105 and you exercise it, that thing right there is now worth $5 to you, right? Because you get to buy at 105, even though it's selling in the market at 110. And so because you wouldn't have to pay $5 to get that thing, that call option. And so with your 100, let's say it was, you know, $2. So with your $100 investment, you could get 50 of those call options rather than buying one share of stock. You get 50 of those call options. Let's, I'm just obviously making up numbers here. And then if it goes up to 110, like you predicted, and so each call option is worth five, now that's five times 50. So that's $250 that your call options would be worth. So you took your $100 investment and turned it into $250 with this example I'm using. Okay, so that's, so you, you would make much more. Okay, but on the other hand, if the stock went down, then your call options would expire worthless and you'd lose everything, right? So that's, so with using call options, just to give the big picture, it's a much more concentrated extremes of, of the outcome of, of your move. So if you're right and you thought it was going up, you make a much higher rate of return on the, the money you put forth to get those call options. But if it goes down, you're dead in the water and they expire. Whereas if you had just bought the one share of stock at 100 and it went down to 90, you would still be able to sell it for 90. So you only would have lost 10% of your original investment. But again, if instead of buying one share of the actual stock, you bought 50 call options, then if it goes down, you, they all expire worthless and you lose everything of your $100. So, and the reason that's relevant is some of the game, um, the subreddit people apparently were not just outright buying shares of stock, they were buying call options. And so that's why, we, you know, it's, it's important for people to know what that what that is. I remember distinctly the series of articles you did for Mises.org on the, the social function of stock speculation and, and then some of these um, related ideas. So I'm going to link to those because they're very much worth reading to understand this stuff better at tomwoods.com slash 1825. All right, so now let's go into what is going on. And of course, the, the, the setup that you've given us helps us a little bit to understand why why GameStop? Like, why, of all possible things, what was the, why would suddenly there be a mad rush to buy GameStop? Okay, so in here, I believe everything I'm going to say is going to be at least accurate in terms of I can cite sources. <laughs> sort of like WMD in Iraq, you know. Oh, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The British I, government, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, the thing is, I'm sure there are people who are in the yeah. heat of this who, no matter what we say, will say that we're not quite expressing right. their their opinions accurately. But I, I'll do my best once you're done with this. Yeah, and no matter what we say, people will say, why didn't you guys switch and talk about Bitcoin? Everybody even forget yeah. GameStop, Bitcoin is the I, thing. I, I know, no matter what you do, it's you guys why are we do X. Yeah, yes. I know. Um, okay, so... I, so I think the big picture is GameStop, because it was located in, I think it has something like 5,000 locations and they're in malls typically, or, you know, like little plazas. So, and they sell games in the, you know, in the store, like physical things. And so the, clearly with the pandemic and the lockdowns and, and then also with this move, more and more stuff coming over, you know, online, you know, people just getting games directly that way, their business model was not looking too hot. And so a lot of institutional investors were shorting them, right? Because they thought GameStop's future is, is bleak. And even back when the, its price was much lower than it had been historically, they still thought, no, it's still overvalued because this, this thing, this enterprise is done. And so they were shorting it. 
And then some people on this subreddit were making the case at some point, and I think they, they were talking, I've seen stories saying you could see little hints of it earlier, but apparently it was April 2020 when someone really came out on this subreddit, the, the Wall Street Bets subreddit, and made a forceful case saying, hey, look, at the, right now there's so many, um, the short interest in this is so high that this is one of the heavily, or if the heavily most heavily shorted stocks out there. And so what we can do is, and it also helps if you think that the the shorting is wrong, if you think the company has a future, right? So it's not merely that, hey, a lot of companies, a lot of firms are shorting this thing, but that you think they're wrong to do so. And so it was making the case, if we just all, and, and this subreddit had something like 2.9 million subscribers, I think. So that's a, you know, a, a lot of people that check this thing saying, hey, we all just chipped in a little bit and bought either shares outright or bought call options on this thing and started pushing the price up, it could cause what's called a short squeeze. And so if you just think about what happens. So if you're an institutional investor and you're short the stock, you know, so you borrowed shares from someone who owned it and you sold it and then said, okay, in the future, we'll buy the shares back and then hand them back to you. If the price starts going up, you're in trouble because at some point, you know, the, the person who lent you the shares is going to say, you need to give me the shares back because as this price keeps going up and up, I, I'm doubting your ability to do that. And so there's that element. And notice too, if you buy a share of stock, um, the worst that could happen is it goes down to zero and you lost 100% of your investment. But if you short a stock, your downside is technically infinite because it could keep it, you know, the price could keep, if you bought it, if you shorted it 100 and it goes up to 200, you know, you lost $100 there. But I mean, if it just keeps going up to 10,000, you know, you're on the hook for that huge difference, right? So there is an asymmetry there when you short, you're exposed to a much bigger potential loss um, depending on how high it goes. So that, that was the strategy. And that's what these people in the subreddit were saying is let's just go ahead and, and everyone just pile into this GameStop stock and we'll push the price up. And then these hedge funds that shorted it, as the price goes up and up, they're going to have no choice but to cover their shorts, right? In other words, they'll have to come back in and buy shares themselves to close out their position because it's getting too expensive. And so that, like, ironically, you're, we're going to force them to come in and buy and push the price up even more. So it's sort of like a snowball effect. So that's what began happening. And there's other elements involved, like the um, Ryan Cohen, the guy who founded Chewy.com, in August of 2020, he came in and thought GameStop, if they just turned around what they were doing, had a, had a future. He bought 9% of the, of the shares. And I think is increased that over time and was saying, hey, if they switch to digital, da 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 they can they can turn this this firm around. So there's lots of things going on. It's not merely a bunch of you know 4chan type people trolling. Like there there were institutional and fundamental reasons that people had legitimate disagreements about the future of this company. But be that as it may, what ended up happening is from its low point to the recent I checked, GameStop shares are up something like 1500 or 1600 percent, depending on which numbers you're looking at. So that can you know show you this isn't just a little blip this is a humongous move such that and, and a lot of it in the last few weeks you know as we're recording this time like on certain days it was up like a hundred percent just in one day and so that's why like TD Ameritrade and Robinhood which is the app that had no fees so that's what the the retail investors you know the little guys on the subreddit a lot of them were using to do these trades and and they all shut down you know trading in these oh because it's so volatile so the narrative that's being pushed, and I think there's a lot of legitimacy to it, is, whoa, these big investors, when they start losing money, because the hedge funds that were short are getting crushed on these positions as, as the price is going up. Again, that's the more it moves, they just lose that much more money for every share that they shorted. So that that's what's going on. And, and people are upset that, oh, if, if it had gone the way the hedge funds wanted, nobody would have been shutting it down. They wouldn't have claimed market manipulation, even though, like you say, Tom, there is a sense in which it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If they short the stock, it pushes the price down and they say, see, we're, we're geniuses. We said it was going to go down. But now because they didn't calculate correctly and they didn't realize all these little guys were going to come in and push the price up, instead of just saying, well, that's a free market for you. There's a profit and loss system. Better luck next time, folks. No, they're running to the government and, and, and certainly all these firms that facilitate the trades and saying, you got to shut this down. This isn't fair, which is kind of ludicrous. Let's take a quick break from the discussion for some housekeeping here. For those of you who were in the supporting listeners group and you got locked out of Facebook, we've since moved to MeWe. 
So if you can't get back into Facebook to see the instructions for how to get over to MeWe, just contact me directly and I'll help you out. For those of you who would like to join the supporting listeners group, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute and you can see the, the relatively paltry amount that you would need to hand me in those dirty fiat dollars in order to get into the fun group at MeWe. And always remember, if you can't make a financial contribution, it still helps a lot. If you share these episodes with people you think might be interested, give them a little taste. Just, hey, hey, what about this? What about this perspective? That's always a great help as well. Thanks for listening, everybody, and let's get back to the show. I've been trying to get into the heads of the people on this subreddit. Mm -hmm. And I guess you don't really have to get in the heads. You can just read what they say. But I'm trying to think of how I would express what the, I don't know, the average person involved in this is thinking. And somebody sent me some material today suggesting that basically, look, it boils down to this. A lot of the people we're dealing with are millennials. A lot of them are people who either were themselves hurt in 2008 or their parents were hurt. Some of them are people who have, and I, I don't mean this to be condescending or patronizing in any way, but some of them are people who have, quote unquote, failed to launch. And they blame some of these big financial institutions for what was done to them in 2008. And then they see what they took to be going on with GameStop, and they took this as an opportunity to strike back. So it's not necessarily a super ideological thing with a really deep philosophy behind it. It's not like Rothbardian anarcho-capitalism or something. And also, there isn't, unfortunately, there isn't really anybody that I can see. There's not, well, I should be careful here. I personally haven't seen a lot of discussion of the Federal Reserve in relation to any of this. And if you're really upset about 2008 and you're only looking at this or that actor in the marketplace, then that's a shame. Like, there's almost no excuse for that. You have the internet, all the information's out there. You should be talking about that too, and so far, nothing. What do you think of all this in terms of the motivations and whether, I mean, are you rooting for them in some way, or is it just a matter of, well, they should certainly be allowed to trade if they want to trade, and there, there shouldn't be restrictions placed on that? you have any sympathies here? And if so, what are they and why? Okay, so one thing I... I want to mention when you back when you were asking me about the social function of speculators and like now how the narrative is that their shorters are the bad you know the big goliath and these are the heroic davids you know going long well th this is the flip side of the script for literally script from that movie the big short you know with uh christian bale and ryan gosling about the housing bubble years and the people who famously bet against the housing bubble and so in that story they were the heroes standing up to you know the, the big banks because the banks were pushing up housing and, you know, the mortgage-backed securities and all that stuff. And these people heroically came in and shorted it and made a bunch of money sticking it. So I just want to be clear, make sure people realize it's not that shorting or going long per se ties up with who you're being told is the good guys and the bad guys. It's It flipped from that one. Also, I had somebody email me because I on Twitter time, I was saying, hey, we're, I'm going to do something on this. Send me articles. And some guy, emailed, he said I could mention the anecdote without his name that he and a bunch of his buddies who are by no means Wall Street mavens, they're just the people that had extra money on the side and they had some quantitative analysis and they thought game stock was overvalued and so they shorted it. And now, of course, they're getting crushed too. And, and his point is, you know, it's not, it's not that we were shorting it to stick it to the little guy and to solidify the, you know, new world orders hold over the middle class in America. It was just, we thought it was overvalued and we shorted it and we're getting crushed now by people who... It's not that they think the fundamentals justify the price it's at. They're just, you know, mad. And that's kind of weird that I'm losing money because these people are mad and they're lashing out, you know, what did I do to them? So there, there is that it's, it's not just four people involved in this, right? Four players. There's obviously lots of stuff going on. So, but you're right, Tom. I, if you go read at least some of the ones that are being, having a, a spotlight put on them, the commentary in these subreddits, yes, it's, they're not merely saying, in my analysis, I'm looking at, you know, these technical charts and whatever, and we see the head and shoulders pattern. And then here, it seems that this is, is pushed down too far. And my, you know, advice is to buy and then sell in third quarter. No, it, it really is. We got to stick it to these people. And especially as it's going up, because there are people apparently that have made many thousands and at least one person, if it's legitimate, looks like he's up over a million dollars or at least 700,000. I think his position's worth a million on this. 
so normally you would think they would sell in what they call profit taking, but yet they're not because it's like, no, I'm sticking it to these people. So it's, they're risking losing because presumably at some point, the momentum of this is going to stop and the price is going to start crashing. It might not come down to where it was before, but you know, given how ludicrously high the price has been pushed, I think most people think, yeah, this, this is artificially high. This can't last. And so normally you'd think people would sell the thing and that would, that would set in motion the, the crash. And yet a lot of them are sticking with it to the applause of everybody else. Like, wow, look at that guy. He's really committed to the cause. He could take a million dollars right now, but he's not because he knows the more we push this thing up, the more it hurts, you know, these hedge funds. So there, there definitely is that element. And I will even say, even though we were all laughing about it, did you see, Tom, that Chris Saliza thing blaming Trumpism for this? I did not. Okay, so yes, as always, CNN, anything that's going on, it's, it's Donald Trump's fault. But I will say, there is a sense in which I'm like, okay, yeah, because he's saying an element of Trumpism was to tell regular working class people, you know, there's these elites out there that hate your guts and they think you're so stupid, but we've got more power than they do. Let's, you know, if you work together and follow my lead, we can stick it to them. And so this Chris Saliza is saying that's kind of what's going on in these subreddit things. These people feel like they've been trampled on by the big Wall Street firms and now they're standing up. And I want to say, okay, yeah, that's arguably true, in which case you should be applauding that. You know what I mean? Like I mean, people on the left are now upset that someone is showing the average person what power he has to stand to Wall Street. And Chris Saliza is, you know, aghast. I mean, this is so weird, this timeline we're in. It is. Now, let me try to see what you would say to what I've seen a whole bunch of financial news anchors saying mm -hmm. when they're faced with, because I, I did see somebody, I don't remember his name, who was defending what the subreddit folks have been up to. And so the anchor said something like this, look, this price, this GameStop price is not helpful to anybody. It, it doesn't reflect price to earnings ratio, like any of the kind of normal inputs you would think would go into a stock price. It, it clearly doesn't reflect anything other than just this craze that's going on. And so how can you support that? How can you support a clear and obvious mispricing of this company? Now, how would you, I mean, I, I think I know how I would answer that, but I, I'm sure yours is better. <laughs> I mean, it's the same kind of thing. I, truly, I think it's very analogous to the argument over, uh, you know, political content and, and disinformation or misinformation. Like someone's, uh, no, there, there's these accounts on Twitter, Murphy, that are clearly spreading false information. How does false information help anybody? And so why don't we just ban that? And then the, you know, the, obvious response is, well, because who gets to determine what's true and false? And that's a very slippery slope. And even though, yes, Twitter is a private company, blah, 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 and they have the right to do it, I'm not saying the government should regulate it. That's a very dangerous move to me. And I, if I were running a social media company, I would you know, have much broader rules in terms of what's permissible. And so likewise here, yeah, if you think the price is too high now, go ahead and short it. If you're right, if you just hang on, then you'll, you'll eventually be proven right and you'll make a boatload of money. But to say because it's so high and we, we can all agree, any reasonable person agree, that's, that's wrong. Let's have these apps, you know, like Robinhood stopped, didn't allow people to trade in the, to buy more shares. They, they let them close other positions, but that's one of the moves that Robinhood and like I said, TD Ameritrade did similar things. To me, just because, oh, this particular thing, and because there's a big media buzz about it, and I think it's partly because all these hedge funds are losing money, you know, if it weren't that, if we're a bunch of hedge funds that were buying and the price went up 1,600% and they were all making boatloads of money, they wouldn't be urging the exchanges to shut it down. So I think it's a similar thing. So Robinhood, I'm sure with its terms of service or has the right to do that. And in general, if there's, you know, a, a private stock exchange and prices are all collapsing and they have things like circuit breakers where, hey, everyone, we're going to take an hour break to, you know, collect our heads and whatever. In principle, I'm okay with that because, hey, they're private companies. They can do what they want. But when it's this motivated, just my personal view is that, no, I, I think that's a bad idea. And again, to say we're going to shut this trades down in this from a certain group of people, which is what's happening because the institutional investors can still do what they want. It's the people who are using the Robinhood app to get away around the fees and be day traders without, you know, because they're not huge institutional brokers that's kind of crazy that you're just muting the ability of certain people. So to me, it's very analogous to like Twitter purging people that, yeah, it's a private company. They have the right to do it. I think it was a very unwise decision. And I'm very skeptical that 
the reasons they gave for why they did it, I don't believe them. So just like with this stuff too, I, I don't think that the reasons that they're so horrified at market volatility, I think it's that a bunch of these big investors or institutions were losing boatloads of money and they leaned on them through various channels. So that's, that's what I think is going on. Well, then I guess uh, Discord removed the Wall Street Bets server and its owner. And Glenn Greenwald, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, had a pretty good response to that. Because, of course, the claim is it's for hate speech. And now, because they're now right. they're accusing them of white supremacy, which is what you do when you're, you got nothing. So just, how about we throw white supremacy at them? So Glenn Greenwald writes, what an absolutely extraordinary coincidence of timing that Discord happened to decide that the Wall Street Bet subreddit had too much hate speech to tolerate on the same day hedge fund billionaires declared them a huge threat for the crime of winning at their expense. I don't see how we argue with that. Right, and, and that's what I meant when I was saying how the, you know, the timing and, and yeah, the, the, the reasons they're giving are just ludicrous. Right, yeah. Yeah, and, and incidentally, as compared with other people in uh, the Wall Street world, my impression always had been that hedge funds tended to be fairly benign. I, I didn't think that hedge funds were really driving 2008 or anything. I mean, do you have anything to say about that? My friend has a, I think it was funnier than what I'm saying, but he has a, something about like, once you get into studying this, if you realize that hedge funds aren't usually hedged. And so, you know, because the, the notion like where that term suggests that hedging is a very safe conservative thing, right? Like if you're long a position, then you you have some put options or whatever in case it drops so you can cover your, you know, that's what it means to be hedged is you're saying no matter what happens, we've, we've cut our losses both ways. And yet here, you know, these places that were, you know, heavily short this thing, obviously as the price went the one way against their their bet, they they got crushed. So um, I agree with what you were saying, Tom. The, the story is, yes, you can look at any particular institutional playing out of this stuff and what happened in the 2008 meltdown. You could blame individual actors and say they did things, but in terms of, you know, yes, hedge funds were involved with pushing up real estate prices and, and so on. And then because they got caught they were part of what happened with the crash. But again, it's not merely hedge funds, if that's what you're, what you're asking. It's, you know, whether they're hedge funds participate or not, the story was going to be basically the same, I would argue. And they facilitate. It's like, it's like saying, you know, oh, uh, our corporations to blame for the welfare warfare state. So certainly they're involved in whatever, but that's not like the essence of what's going on. And if you had a different structure, then corporations would be a lot more benign. I don't know for sure, again, what the philosophical makeup of the folks doing this is, but I don't think it's a 100% overlap between them and people who are concerned about the power of big tech. Now, again, we have to have make the caveat about, you know, whether big tech is free market or not, and if it is, they can do what they want. I mean, that, none of that matters. We're, still, they exercise a lot of power. We can use that word in the colloquial sense that normal, in which normal people use it. I don't think some of these people were that concerned. And then Discord does this to them. And then you get uh, trades being shut down, you know, on Robinhood, for example. I wonder if at the end of this, some additional people start to say, hmm, maybe we do need more competition in this or that sector because it does seem as if there are arbitrary decisions being made. I hope so. Right. I, I think there probably is a lot of overlap, like the kind of people that we're mad about. And also, since apparently they're all white supremacists. They well, are then, already, yeah, 100%. You know, yeah. <laughs> they're already yeah. on guard to our way of life. Our dominance in this country is being taken from us <laughs> through the ballot box. And, you know, this is unacceptable. But more seriously, yeah, I, some of the personalities, the loud ones, it really is, I think, an overlap. But you're, but you're right, to the extent that some people might not have been paying attention or they're busy and they're just doing these day trades and whatever, and they're not really political or on Twitter. Yeah, this they're going to say, what? We got shut down just because, you know, our plan worked and you guys are losing too much money? Are you kidding me? So yeah, I think that that will happen. One more thing I want to tell you about, also from Greenwald's Twitter. He's really, I, I you know, I follow him, so I see them, his tweets once in a while, but on this, boy, he's been just great. He says, we have an extraordinary political and cultural conflict involving intergenerational wealth, vast disparities of power, and a deeply corrupt financial system. Now, again, I'm sure he looks at it differently from us. And he says, and this is what the Biden White House has to say about it. And it's a 54-second clip of the press secretary who was asked about GameStop and AMC and what's been going on. 
And her response is to remind everyone that they have the first female treasury secretary now and that they're, quote, monitoring the situation. So the state, of course, is supposed to be the watchdog to keep an eye on stuff like this. They have absolutely no clue what's going on. And speaking of no clue, by the way, my old friend Tom Elliott, who used to produce Peter Schiff's radio show when he was on terrestrial radio, on his Twitter the other day with his Grabian media service, he compiled all the times that in the short, short time that this one press secretary has been in charge of the Biden White House, that she said, we're going to have to circle back on that. I'll circle back with you on that. And it's like 15 times <laughs> where it's, I think I'm going to have to circle back. That's a great question. We'll circle back. And of course, you never, there is no circle. It's some kind of a 27 gone or something, but it's not, <laughs> it ain't no circle. <laughs> All right, a little joke for all the math nerds out there. Is there anything else we need to say on this? I mean, it's a developing thing, and we're just trying to get our feet wet, figuring it all out. But at least I figured let's lay out the basic concepts involved and then uh, try and understand what's happening. So uh, is there anything that we left out that you think we need to include? Yeah, just to follow up on your train of thought there. So in very similar to the social media purges and whatnot, here I'm concerned that government regulation will will result from this that you know people will say hey we couldn't have this wildcat wild west traders out here we need to have there's a loophole you know the sec has a good handle on the more established venues and, and exchanges but this this stuff with these people coming in and you know doing drive-bys and, and wrecking investment positions or whatever and causing volatility that's just unacceptable we need to crack down on that so just like they're making all sorts of inroads into softening the public up for the idea that we're going to, hey, we need to regulate Fox News because they're spreading disinformation daily over there. I think they're just, again, going to use this because now the public realizes, oh, yeah, a bunch of white supremacists, and I say realize in quotation marks, causes massive stock manipulation. And, and of course, once the price comes down, because it, it has to, there's going to be little, you know, sob stories about somebody who got in real late in the game and then lost a bunch of money. And, oh, now I had to tell my wife that our retirement's gone. And so that, you know, that will be held up as look at just more carnage from the white supremacists. We really need to regulate this stuff. Yeah. So that, of course, is the, that is the risk that's being run here. So we'll just keep an eye on it. So thank you, Bob. Of course, you folks. We're, Tom and I are monitoring the situation. Yeah, we're monitoring the situation. We don't have the, I don't have my first female co-host ever. That, that's for yeah. sure. I, th Bob is my former male co-host for our old podcast, Contra Krugman. But you should check out his current podcast, which is the main reason you don't hear much of him on the Tom Woods Show anymore. That is bobmurphyshow.com. And uh, I dare say Bob covers a, an even more diverse array of topics than the old man here. So definitely check out bobmurphyshow.com. Thanks again, Bob. Thanks for having me. Okay, so here now it's just back to me, folks. So Tom and I did cover the main things that I thought were the most important to get out at this point. One little technical aspect that we didn't get a chance to get into, let me just explain. Part of what's going on with why people think that the short positions that the hedge funds and other institutional investors had were so unnatural, let's say, or perverse, is that they were saying, whoa, they're actually short more shares than there are outstanding. So a particular statistic I saw was that at least at one point in this, I don't know if this is still true at the moment, but at one point, the short interest for GameStop was 71.2 million shares at a time when there were only 69.7 million shares outstanding, right? And so, again, the idea is that, wait a minute, they, th these uh, institutional investors, hedge funds and whatnot that were short, were short more shares of GameStop than existed, and so for a lot of people, that just seems pervert. Like, that doesn't even make any sense. How could that be? And so clearly something's wrong here, and it's a good thing that these heroic retail traders came in and, and stood up to them because they're doing something fishy. So again, I'm not talking about the merits of this particular case because I don't, you know, I didn't go in and look at the technical details or whatever. But just in general, I want to make the point, the fact that people are short more shares than exist by itself is not a violation of the laws of logic or something. So let me just explain. So let's say there's a company that's got a thousand shares outstanding and it's trading at $10 a share. And you think that it's overpriced. 
you think that, oh, I'm doing the fundamental analysis in the long run. I don't see how this thing should be trading for more than $5. And I think, I think it's in a bubble right now. So you go ahead and you want to short it. And so if what you're doing is, is not buying put options, but instead you're actually shorting the stock because, you know, having puts is another way, you know, you could sort of lever your view. But if you, what you're doing is actually shorting and you're really confident, all right? So let's say you go ahead and you borrow all 1,000 shares from people and you sell at 10 and then you're sitting there waiting for the price to go down because you're really sure in the long term it's going to go down to five. And now you're waiting and a month passes. And, and let's say that the terms under which you agreed to borrow the shares, you know, you have to pay them back in three months, let's say. All right, so one month goes by and you're sitting there and the price has only moved down to nine. And you're like, wow, this thing is still in a huge bubble. So at that point, I mean, bygones are bygones. You're an investor, you have some money, you think there's a, a stock out there that's overvalued. It's right now trading at nine and you think in the long run, its price really can't be higher than five in terms of the fundamentals. So you think this isn't a massive bubble still. So what would you do? Oh, you could short it. So at any given time, somebody owns the shares, right? The fact that you just shorted it a thousand shares the month prior doesn't stop you from approaching the, the new people who own it. And, you know, it could actually be the same people from before, who knows, but those thousand shares at any given moment are owned by somebody. It's not that they're just in limbo or in circulation. They're always owned by somebody. And so you could approach those people and say, hey, can I borrow your shares of stock? And I'll give it back to you, let's say in two months so that they all come due roughly the same time, right? And they say, sure, let's say you, get all, you snatch up all 1,000 shares again. Because again, by stipulation in this example, the company, let's assume, only has 1,000 shares of stock total, right? So you get all 1,000 shares, you sell them all for $9 a piece, you get another 9,000 in cash, and now you're sitting waiting for the price to go down. And so let's say it does go down. So at this point, notice the short position would be 2,000 shares, even though there's only 1,000 shares outstanding. And so it looks crazy, right? How, how in the world... This guy owes 2,000 shares of stock back to me. There's only 1,000 that exist. He couldn't possibly cover that, people might think. But no, let's say the price goes down to five you know, after two and a half months pass. So now you've got a half a month left to give people, you know, to pay them back. The, you, you, but let's say just for simplicity that every share was only owned by one person at any given time. So no one owned more than one share of stock in this company just to keep the numbers simple, right? So there's now 2,000 people out there and we'll also assume that after you did the initial burst of borrowing and shorting, it was a new thousand people that bought the shares, not the original group that lent it to you. Okay, so now there's 2,000 people out there who think this guy owes me one share of stock and, you know, in addition to the small fee he paid for the right to borrow it and short it. Okay, and so the question or the issue is, could you possibly satisfy that given that there only exist 1,000 shares of stock? And the answer is obviously yes. You're just doing the mirror image of how you got in the, your position. So you go, now that the price is five, let's say, you go out and you have, because you sold the initial ones for 10,000, then the second burst you sold for 9,000. So you've got $19,000 in cash. You go out, you buy all 1,000 shares at five. So that cost you $5,000. So your 19 now goes down to 14,000. And then you give those shares back to a thousand of the people that you borrowed it from originally. So now you've cut in half the number of people who are waiting for you to give them one share of stock back, right? And let's say by you doing that, you push the price up to seven, all right? And then you go in for another round and you buy seven or the thousand at seven. So that costs you 7,000. And I think if I'm doing the math right, you had 14. And so now you're back down to seven. All right, so you still got 7,000 left. You've got the 1,000 shares again. You own all of it. And then you dutifully return them to the other 1,000 people that are still waiting for you to give them one share each. So now everybody's been paid back. They're the stock, that, you know, the shares that you borrowed from them when you shorted in the two bursts. And you're still sitting on, I think, $7,000 profit, if I've done the math right. Less whatever you had to pay them, the, the small fee for the act of borrowing their share and shorting because they don't let you do that for free, obviously. All right. So that's, that's the way it would work. And, you know, why would anybody do that? Well, if, if after your initial short, 
you still thought the stock was way overvalued and you wanted to do it again, that's that's why you would do it. Okay, so again, if you're right, then that's good. That you you know the market stubbornly kept the stock overvalued, and with your superior foresight, you were like, no, I know this is going down. I'm going to double down, literally, right? And so it's it's not wrong to double down if you're right, <laughs> right? But if it blows up in your face, obviously it's bad. But in general, the fact that you add on to a position doesn't mean there's something unnatural going on. All right, so that's the, the technical thing I wanted to just clarify. And, you know, it's you see this pop up in other places too. I didn't go look up the numbers, but I'm sure like the total market cap of all Wall Street stocks is bigger than the stock of money in the United States. And so somebody might say, well, how can this be? There's not enough money in existence to buy all these stocks at these inflated prices. So something's fishy. And no, it's just that when the whole, when the price goes up and the market cap goes up, you know, oh, the price rose from 10 to 15. And now the market cap of that company rose by $3 billion. It's not that $3 billion got debited from somebody's account somewhere in, in actual currency. It could have just been a small number of shares trading at 15 to cause the market price of that stock to now move up, right? So in, in the limit, a stock, you know, the last trade was at 10. And so that's how we get the market cap of the company. We take $10 a share times however many shares there are, that's the market cap. Now one person buys one share of that stock and gives $15 to the seller. And there's no other trades. That one act of $15 changing hands now made the market cap of that company go up by 50%. So again, depending on how many shares outstanding there are, that could be construed as an increase in millions or billions of dollars in principle, even though only $15 changed hands. Okay, so just keep those things in mind when you're you know, hearing stuff about, oh, geez, there's more, the, the short position is, is bigger than the number of shares available. Per se, that's not proof that there's something crazy or unnatural going on. I mean, it's it's risky perhaps, you know, like if you're in the board meeting of the hedge fund and they're looking at their positions and someone points that out and maybe you'd want to say, whoa, why, why are we taking such an aggressive position? But I'm just saying that per se, that doesn't mean something fishy is going on. Just like the fact that the market cap of all the stocks or certainly all the real estate and other assets in the US is greater than the total number of actual dollars doesn't prove that, wait a minute, everything's in a speculative bubble because there's not enough money in the world to pay for all this stuff. Or another way of putting it is if everybody sold all their financial assets except for cash at once, they couldn't possibly get that many dollars coming in. But that fact doesn't prove that therefore all the prices must be wrong and everything is in a bubble, right? So just wanted to make those clarifications and... With that, I will wrap up this episode. Thanks, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.